0: Uh, In some ways, this section that we're looking at tonight is is a section that goes from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 10. So it's sort of the main central section of the book of Hebrews where it develops this idea of Christ as priest. Now, the idea of Christ as our priest is really not talked about in many other New Testament books. In fact, it's one of the reasons I believe that we have the book of Hebrews. God wants us to understand that Jesus... Is our high priest, and uh, as we talk about this tonight, hopefully you'll understand why that's important, not just important to understand theologically so you have your theology right, but why it's such a precious, sweet truth that you need to know to live in relationship with God. One of my favorite movies of all time is this movie Parenthood. I think I said something about it recently. I I quote it all the time. Y'all should watch it on a movie night sometime. Um, it'll make me cry. I guarantee that. But uh, one of my favorite parts in the movie is after Steve Martin, who's kind of the dad, who's kind of anal and definitely obsessive compulsive and has all these anxiety issues. Um, He's trying to hold his life together, but everything's spinning out of control. Um, He quits his job because he gets upset at getting passed over for a promotion. And his wife says, great, because I just found out I'm pregnant. And you just quit your job. And Um, what are we going to do? And they start, you know, getting this big argument. And then the grandmother um, decides to tell this weird little story about how when she was young, grandpa took her to the state fair and how she just loved, loved the roller coaster. And she says, some people, some people like that Ferris wheel. No, the merry-go-round. Some people love the merry-go-round. But that just goes round and round. I like the roller coaster. And you hear like the sound of the roller coaster. And In in a lot of ways, Steve Martin's whole life is dominated by the fact that he can't stand the roller coaster. He wants everything in its nice, neat, tidy place. He doesn't want highs. He doesn't want lows. Uh, In many ways, I resonate with that character because as I've often thought about my life, I would in some ways prefer that I live in sort of these various shades of gray in a world that God has created full of color. Now, the full of color is really awesome and exciting, but also really painful and distressing at times. And I think one of the things that can help us embrace the world the way God has made it, instead of trying to fashion it into what we would rather have, in my case, a world that doesn't really get too out of control, doesn't really ever Um, disappoint you so much, but it also never really excites you, but that's a price I'm willing to pay as long as I don't ever get really disappointed. Maybe some of you are like that. Um, But I think that we're always trying to fashion God's world and reality into something that seems to fit what we would want. But one of the truths that can really help us embrace reality the way it is is that we have a high priest who has become like us, but who is in so many ways not like us. That high priest is Jesus. The reality of the priesthood of Jesus is what you need to be able to deal with life as it really is and to embrace reality. Sometimes when I'm thinking about preparing a sermon, I think that what this time should be about is offering you theological perspective or theological orientation to reality. I don't know if you're accustomed to thinking of Christianity as helping orient you to reality. For a lot of people, they think of Christianity as the time where you get away from reality. Sometimes people even pray at the beginning of a worship service, Lord, leave like all that stuff of life outside and let us just come here and worship you. But you should never pray that way because God is not interested in disconnecting you from reality. Worship is should be a time where you bring all of life into the presence of God, and he meets you there in the stuff of life. Hearing from God's word should be a time where dots get connected, not where you're basically come and turn off your mind and don't think about things except spiritual things. No, God's word speaks to all of life. And one of the challenges that we have in dealing with all of life is that all of life is really difficult Sometimes we would rather live in a fantasy world where we can pretend that all that stuff out there isn't real. But God, instead of taking us out of the suffering, out of the brokenness, gives us one who will be with us in the midst of this suffering. Now, God's been saying this for a long time. One of my favorite places he says that is Isaiah 43. Do you remember Isaiah 43? Um, sometimes we sing this song, Uh, when you walk through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the flames, I will be with you. You'll not be burned. Do you remember that? It's an amazing promise because God's people are going to walk through floods and fires, and God doesn't promise to deliver them or keep them from those things. Instead, he promises that I will be with you in the midst of that. And in particular, what he's talking about there in Isaiah 43 is the exile that's coming, where God's people are going to be uh, uprooted by this foreign invading army and carried off into exile. And then as some of them are in the exile, in the book of Daniel, you see this amazing picture where Daniel's three friends are thrown into this fiery furnace. And rather than burning up, what do they see? It says in the Bible that there was one like a son of man there with them in the midst of the fire. And God is teaching that he is not about the program of removing us from reality, even the reality of a broken world, but instead wants to meet us and strengthen us in the midst of it. And ultimately, the way we see that most clearly is in the person of Jesus, who has come to be our high priest. A high priest who learned obedience by suffering. And so it is with all of God's children. Now, if you're checking out Christianity, this may not seem like a very inviting idea. But I would submit to you, I would submit to you that the silly kind of pop psychology that goes by the name of Christianity in a lot of places is is really not what you want. You want a God who is acquainted with grief and suffering and who has done something about it. You may think that you would rather have a nice little fairy tale existence where everything just works out. You may, at times, even pray for that. But God wants you to understand reality because Jesus had to taste reality beyond what you can even imagine. Let's look at our passage of Scripture here. It's in Hebrews chapter 4 is where we're going to start with verse 14. Sometimes the chapter markings aren't the most helpful for dividing up Um, sections of Scripture. There's nothing divine about the, the chapters or even the verses. They were added in later to help us find our place in the Bible, but there's nothing magical about them. And in this case, the section really starts with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Read with me. Therefore, since we have, I love that, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people." And no one takes this honor, this honor of being a a high priest on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the first high priest, uh, was. So the first four verses here are really talking about what everybody getting this letter would have understood about a high priest. It's like, of course, you know high priests are like this and this and this and this. Now, I'm going to explain some of this because you don't necessarily have a background where you've been going to the temple and seeing the high priest and learning from the time you were little what the high priest does, okay? So, but here's where where it goes next in verse 5. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him in Psalm 110, You are my son. Sorry, that's not Psalm 110 there. Um, You are my son, today I become your father. And he says in another place, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, after spring break, fall break we will take up these last few verses, but I do want you to get that context. He's trying to explain to this thing that is so important that he basically spends chapters 5 through 10 on it. What, it. what does it mean and why is it so important that we have a high priest, particularly to these people? You remember the Hebrews are Christians who are from Jewish background who are about to undergo intense persecution. Some of them will probably be killed for their faith. And the writer to Hebrews says, I have five chapters to tell you about the high priesthood of Jesus, but it's hard because you don't even really care to understand the thing that you need to know so deeply. I'm afraid you're not really even ready for it, but I've got to tell you anyway. So he says that and then he goes on and tells him about it, but we'll we'll get to that after fall break. Let's pray together, and then we'll start digging into this passage. Lord, we do thank you that we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, even Jesus, the Son of God. And we pray, Lord, that as we unpack your word tonight, that it would help us to hold more firmly to the faith we profess because we have a high priest who is able to empathize with us, a high priest who has come and done everything necessary for sinners to come boldly before the throne of grace find help in their time of need. Father, we are such who need this help. Come to us even now. Help us in our time of need to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable. Do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, our high priest. Now, as I said, Hebrews is, is really practically the only book that really develops this idea of the high priesthood of Jesus And yet God had been preparing his people for a long time to understand this idea. And and the beginning of this section assumes that you understand what a high priest is. The reason it it assumes that is because these Hebrews that God is, is writing to in this letter are people who have for thousands of years been familiar with this practice of the sacrifices and the temple and a high priest who does this stuff. But now, you don't necessarily understand that. So let me tell you a little bit about what, is it, what does it mean to be a high priest? What's the purpose of a high priest, for instance? The purpose, basically, of a priest is somebody who represents people before God. Now, Hebrews actually talks at the beginning about how God has spoken his final word through Christ. So the book of Hebrews starts out with the idea that Christ is the true prophet, And the one who speaks this preeminent, final word. He says, in former days, this is how Hebrews chapter 1 starts, God has spoken in various ways and through various uh, men. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus is the one who speaks on God's behalf to us. But then as a priest, he goes from us to God. And those are the two major ways that Jesus is described and the pictures of Jesus that are particularly important for the Hebrews in this time of trial. Why do we need a priest? We need a priest because we can no longer stand before God and look him in the face and know that he smiles at us. Why? Because mankind has turned away from God The Bible says that all of us, like sheep, have went astray. There is none who is without sin. Now, I know that word isn't very popular. You might think of it the way um, Augustine described it one time, as that inward curvature of the soul. So rather than getting hung up on, is this a sin or is that a sin, and even that word sounds so old-fashioned and fundamentalist, think of this. God has made you to not be consumed with you. And when you go against the design, it brings not only destruction to you, but to other people that you're in relationship with and to your relationship with God. God has made you not to focus on yourself and be obsessed with yourself. And you know that so much of the brokenness in your own life is because we refuse. We refuse to submit to what God has said I made you for. We're so focused on ourselves and what we need to do and what we need and trying to get that for ourselves no matter how we use or what we need to use to get it. God has said, no, I didn't make you to be for yourself. I made you to serve me. And you will find find yourself when you lose yourself this is what Jesus says, that you will find yourself when you give yourself away. I know we always say that silly thing at Christmas, you know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But there is something about that, because it's what God made us for. But it's not the way we live. And because it's not the way we live, God is not happy. The reality is, mankind stands before a holy God and has to answer to this God. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote this amazing essay, I think I've referred to it before, called God in the Dock, where he says, you know, for most of human history and most cultures, people have assumed that mankind had to answer to God for how mankind has lived and what mankind has done with the stuff that God has given to mankind. But he said in the modern world, there's this curious thing that's happened. is Modern man has just as, has sort of turned upside down the assumption without any real basis or justification. But modern man has said, look, no, uh, hell no. I don't, I don't have to answer to God. God has to answer to me. God, why have you done this? Why have you done that? Why haven't you done this? And C.S. Lewis said, like, the sort of difference between modern man and most every other person who's ever lived is that modern man assumes that God is in the dock. The dock in the English court system is where the defendant sits. And, and modern man assumes that God is the one who has to answer to our charges. But Hebrews says, no, it's not that way. It's really not that way. God made you. He made you for a purpose. And you have to answer for that. Therefore, you need a priest because you can't stand before a holy God based upon what you've done or how you've lived. Oh, I might, I I know you might say, well, geez, I've never killed anybody. It's like, okay, that's fine. Though Jesus says, if you've been angry with somebody in your heart, you've killed them. So I don't know if you still want to try and say that to Jesus. But let me tell you, Jesus says that to be in a relationship with God, you need to love him with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, with all your strength. And God doesn't grade on a curve. And that's just the reality. And it wouldn't be kind of me to soft sell that. Jesus did not come and die on a cross just for the heck of it. If you want to know what we need, you can start with yourself and you might figure out some of it. But a much better way to figure out what you really need is to look at what Jesus did. Because I don't know if you remember this or not, but Jesus in the garden, right before he went to the cross, he prayed to God and said, Father, if there be any other way, any other way for my people to be reconciled to you, then let this cup pass from me. And the cup he meant was the cup in the Old Testament described as the cup of God's wrath. And in the Old Testament, God promises that one day His enemies will drink the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, that they will endure and suffer the full fury of His wrath for ruining His world. And Jesus says, "That's the cup I need to drink." but I don't want to drink it. And if there be any other way, don't make me drink this. But he prays, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes to the cross and he drinks that cup to the very dregs. And then he cries out, it is finished. Now, what does that mean? Why is that important? that is important because here's the thing. If Jesus didn't really need to die, if all that you needed to do was wish you were a better person, feel bad about the ways you're not a better person, if that's all you really needed to do for God to say, okay, well, that's good enough. You know, most people I know don't even, don't even feel bad about how bad they are, but you feel bad, so that's good. Come into my kingdom. If, if that's all you needed to do was feel bad, then Jesus suffered for nothing. Right? So to get a true sense of what you need, it's it's not so helpful just to look at what you think you need. It's better to look at what Jesus did because Jesus didn't do anything he didn't have to do. You understand? So we have a high priest. We have a high priest now, what did this high priest do in the Old Testament? A couple things. I'll just tell you this real quick. The one thing he did is he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole people, the whole nation, on, for, on their sins. And God wasn't saying that this animal and this sacrifice animal would pay for sin. God was teaching, and we're going to get into this later in Hebrews. God was teaching that there has to be, there has to be death. There has to be death. Do you remember the story of the garden after Adam and Eve rebel against God? He kicks them out of the garden. He doesn't want them to have access to the tree of life anymore. Why? Because the only way for reconciliation to come is for death to be satisfied. And if an Adam and Eve were not able, if death was not able to come into the world, then neither was reconciliation. Reconciliation. They're kicked out of the garden so that they couldn't continue to live forever in this state of rebellion against God. And God blocks their way from getting back to the garden. You remember how? With an angel with a flaming sword embroidered on the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The place where the high priest had to go once a year into that Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice for the people, embroidered on that curtain, was palm trees and a sword. And God's people understood the significance of this, that to get back to the garden. The garden, it doesn't really matter where it is, because Jerusalem, the temple, the Holy of Holies, is what the garden is. It's the place where you can be with God and walk with him in the cool of the day and have rich fellowship. Look him in the face and see his smile and know his love. To get back to that place somebody had to go under the sword. And that's what that's what it means that when we say that we have a high priest. Somebody went under the sword. Not only did the high priest have to offer sacrifices for the nation, but he also did this interesting thing. This is also, you can read about this in Leviticus 16 if you want. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Leviticus, but you might look at Leviticus 16. You understand a little more of this. The other thing that the priest did is he would take a goat it was called the scapegoat. He would place his hands on the goat's head and he would confess all the sins of the people. And then the goat would be banished, banished from the people. The idea is that sin not only needs to be dealt with, needs to be punished, but it also ostracizes us and puts us outside of fellowship, not just with God, but even with God's people. And the high priest does these things. But the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of his family first. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here when he says that the high priest is somebody who can identify with the people because he was chosen from among the people. It's not an honor he takes to himself. God appoints one to be a high priest, which is God's grace. To say that I am going to provide a way to deal with your sin. Adam and Eve had no idea what to do. You remember what happened after they sinned? They're hiding in, a, hiding in the bushes. And they're trying to hide with fig leaves, right? Now, those leaves that are talked about there, they're really big, right? They seem like they would be good coverings for shame, except they have huge holes in them. Just such a brilliant picture of the kinds of things we use to hide our brokenness. So Adam and Eve didn't really know what to do. They're just hiding. But God knows what to do. And he promises, I'm going to send one who will crush the head of the serpent and make all things right. And Jesus comes to do that to be the fulfillment of all that the high priest did. So the high priest is somebody who is from among the people, but he's also somebody who is, who is frail and who is weak and who sins himself, and therefore he needs to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And the writer of Hebrews says, look, this is really important one of the things that the high priest was supposed to do was to be sensitive and gentle and deal with people's sins in a gentle way, right? He didn't just do this ritual, like far off at a distance. He was to be one that you went to and dealt with your spiritual problems, and he was supposed to be sensitive and kind. And one of the ways that God had had built into the system to make sure that he was always sensitive and humble was he would have to sacrifice for his own sins. So he was supposed to always be reminded that he wasn't like this super spiritual person who was better than everybody else. He himself had to sacrifice for his own sins before he did the work of the ministry. Now, I know that in so many ways this pattern has not been followed. In fact, in Jesus' own day, like the writers of the Hebrews would have been kind of astonished at this, because in Jesus' own day, the high priesthood had been bought by one family. Kind of like the papacy in the Middle Ages. It was a completely corrupt system. The high priest was not one of the common people. He was somebody who was aloof, powerful, and rich, who had bought this priesthood. He was not like one of the people. And so it's fascinating. The writer of the Hebrews, like, where does he get the idea that the priesthood should be gentle? Because it doesn't really talk about this that way in the Old Testament. Yes, it's true that the, that the sacrifices should keep him humble, but it's not really spelled out that way. I believe that where he got this from was by looking at Jesus. Again, you don't really know what you need unless you look at Jesus and what he suffered. You also don't really know what the priesthood was to be about unless you look at Jesus. If you only look at the earthly priests, you will not understand the full significance of what the priesthood was to be about. But if you look at Jesus, the one who said, "I am weak," or sorry, "I am meek and humble of heart," Like when when the New Testament Christians kind of had to wrestle with, wow, Jesus really was the Messiah. He died on the cross, and three days later, he was here, risen. And they had to change and readjust how they thought about everything. And one of the things they realized was, this one was the priest of priests. And he wasn't like those other priests. He was gentle and kind. He was the one who sinners and tax collectors wanted to be around. Now, unfortunately, for a lot of you, you've not experienced that. I was talking to somebody today who was just talking about how they had experienced hurt and real harm from church leadership that wasn't gentle and wasn't connected to this idea. And I know for some of you in this room that you've been harmed that way. Let me just encourage you that if you want to understand what church leadership should be about, you have to get beyond what you've experienced, and you have to look at Jesus. You have to look at Jesus. He is what the priesthood was about. But also, you need to look at Jesus because he understood what it was like to suffer under a corrupt priesthood. Who rather than recognize him, the one who had come to save his people, put him to death to keep their own power. The priesthood in Jesus' day would rather kill the Messiah and did kill the Messiah rather than give up their power and say there's no longer a need for a priesthood because the true priest has finally come. No, they didn't do that. They put him to death. The great irony, of course, isn't doing that. He fulfilled the great priesthood that he needed to. Jesus is our high priest. Now, he's like the priests in some ways, but he's unlike all these other priests because what Jesus does actually works. I love the way, look at this in verse 10. I love verse 10 here. It says that, uh, sorry, it's not verse 10, it's verse 9. Son, though he was, verse 8, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And here, verse 9, once made perfect, he became the source of, of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus didn't just do a work that pointed to salvation. He did the work that caused salvation. Do you understand this? Jesus brings salvation. I mean, imagine a Jewish person in the first century being told that you could now enter into the Holy of Holies without needing to do any sacrifices. I mean, you understand like the high priest once a year got to go in there and he was afraid he might die. He really was. Like he did all these sorts of things. He bathed numerous times behind a linen sort of screen in front of all of the people. He offered sacrifices for himself. He did all this stuff. He wore clean white robes every other day except the Day of Atonement. The priest wore bright colored robes. But on the Day of Atonement, when he had to go in the Holy of Holies, he wore white. Did all these things knowing he might die. And then you tell these Jews, you know what? You don't have to do any of that. You don't have to wear white. You don't have to dress up. You don't even have to offer sacrifices. Because of what Jesus did, you can come boldly into the Holy of Holies and look God in the face. That's a- astonishing. Now, in our day and age, it's difficult. It, 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 doesn't have the same, it doesn't pack the same power. Because in our day and age, we've so many ways, we've trivialized God. In other words, we, we basically believe, well, God, of course, well, God will accept us. Like, that's what he's for. But you need to to understand, this is a really big deal. You can't just come into the presence of God. Jesus came into the presence of God on the cross, covered in sin, and God obliterated him. So you can't just come into the presence of God unless Jesus took that obliteration that you deserved. But because of what Jesus does, we can come into this high priesthood. Consider the magnitude of this. I mean, do you understand Jesus in the garden? This is Jesus. This is the guy who walked on water. This is the guy who called Lazarus back to life by simply saying, Lazarus, come forth. And in the garden of Gethsemane, as he prays, he thinks about the cross And it says that his sweat was like great drops of blood. He is overwhelmed. He even says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Why? What was he so afraid of? I want to read you something from Leviticus chapter 26. Again, most of you all aren't really probably prone to do your quiet times in the book of Leviticus. What's interesting is, in Hebrew school, the first book they study is Leviticus. That's kind of interesting. Christians should read Leviticus more because it helps you understand the holiness of God. But one of the things about Leviticus that will freak you out is Leviticus 26, picking up at verse 14. You might, if you've got a Bible, you can look at it. Um, I want to read you just a little bit. I won't read it all because even a few verses will kind of do the trick. This is the curses of the covenant for those who don't do everything that God requires. You ready for this? I've had people ask me sometimes, like, what do you do with this? Like, I'm a Christian, and I read Leviticus 26, and I didn't know what to do with this because I don't do all this stuff. Like, I break God's law, and here's what it says. If you will not listen to me... God says, and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. And then he starts listing. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set, I, God, will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me, I'll punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I'll send wild animals against you and they'll rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. And if in spite of these things, you do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile to me, I myself will be hostile toward you, and I will afflict you for your sins seven times over. I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you, and you will be given into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven, and they'll dole out bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. And then he says, if you continue to be hostile to me, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I'll destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries. I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. And on and on and on it goes. And you say, what the heck? Like, And you may even think, "Like, okay, well, I, that's that whole horrible God of the Old Testament. But let me just tell you, Our God is a consuming fire is still coming up in the book of Hebrews, right? Don't fall into that silly idea that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a touchy-feely God who says, there, there, it's going to be okay. No, our God is a consuming fire is in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, as a matter of fact. And I will cover you with the shelter of my wings is in the Old Testament, okay? Okay? So it's much more it's much more complicated than that. How do you read this as a Christian? Here's how you read it This is what Jesus suffered. He redeemed us from the curse of the covenant by becoming a curse for us. If you want to know why Jesus, why Jesus fell to his knees and his sweat was like blood drops coming out of his pores, it's because he knew this is what was coming. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, when they beat him, he made no sound. When they put a crown of thorns on his head, he made no sound. When they spat upon him, he made no sound. But when he felt this from his father, he screamed, my God, my God, why? And he knew why up here theologically. But knowing it here and experiencing the full fury of the holy, infinite God. Two very different things. And what you need to know in the midst of the struggles that you deal with is that this is what Jesus struggled with. This is what Jesus dealt with. Therefore, Jesus, Jesus has been everywhere you're afraid to go. And he's suffered anything that has broken you and caused you to wonder if God is real or if he loves. Jesus has taken that. And you know, Jesus prayed that God would sustain him through that. As a matter of fact, it says in the Gospel of Luke that that God sent an angel not to take him out of the garden. I mean, this is like you know, in the Quran, it says that God could never see his holy prophet suffer. And so as Jesus was carrying the cross, there was some poor schmuck in the crowd, and God switched them. And, and that somebody else um, was basically sort of switched with Jesus but made to look like Jesus so that he died and Jesus didn't have to suffer. I mean, that's the same temptation that Satan had been giving to Jesus all along, Right? So I don't know what you think about Islam, but in, in many ways, what it says about the cross ultimately is what Peter told Jesus. You don't have to suffer. You remember what Jesus said to that? Get behind me, Satan. In other words, Jesus suffered the full weight of God's wrath. He wasn't delivered from it. He didn't get to do an end run around the cross but God strengthened him in the midst of it. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying to these people. He learned obedience through suffering, and he was made perfect. That word is probably better translated. He was made mature or complete because of suffering. And so it is with all of God's children. If you want to understand the love of God, you may say I really want to know more about God's love and be able to trust him more. What did that mean for Jesus? It meant a cross. He learned obedience by suffering. And that may really challenge your idea of the love of God. It did for the Hebrews. You're going to get to chapter 12 and you're going to see they're going to say like it seems to me that like God sending trials in my life means that I can't be his true child and he says no, actually just the opposite. God, God calls us all to be priests. And the only way that you can keep your heart open to God is when trials and struggles come, you say, let me fellowship with Christ in the midst of my sufferings and taste a little bit of what it meant for him to love me. And may I come to understand how unbelievable it is that he would love me enough to take 10 times, 100 times, what I'm suffering with. It doesn't make light of your suffering. It actually dignifies your suffering. Jesus, our high priest, suffered from the moment he was born until he finally died on a cross, and it got harder for him every single day. And yet still he didn't back down because he would rather die than live without you. Does that not have power to melt your heart? Let me, let me conclude this way. Have you made use of Jesus as your high priest? There may be some of you here tonight who, who are not sure that they really want to flee to Jesus. Maybe there are people here you've been hanging around Christianity, you've been trying to explore it. Let me just say this. If Jesus in the garden was afraid to take... Well, I'll put it this way. If Jesus in the garden was afraid to meet God face-to-face you really want to do that? Are you really sure that you want to stand before God based upon your record and your life? When Jesus contemplated standing before God, it it brought him to anguish and tears and crying out, God, don't make me do this. And you don't have to do it if you run to Jesus. You don't have to Deal with God on your own. Have you made use of him to return to him, right? Maybe some of you feel like I'm in sort of this prodigal place. The way way back to God is through Jesus. Jesus does not come and say, you get one chance to use my blood. No, we have a great high priest who even now sits at the right hand of the Father and pleads his wounds for all of his children, and says, Father, forgive this one. Look at me. Look at what I suffered in their place. I think so many times Christians are like, well, you know, I believed that I could come to Jesus one time because I didn't know better, but now I know better. And how do I come back to God now when I've sinned in ways that I never would have believed I could have done? And the answer is Jesus lived and died in place of sinners. And to come back to God come through Jesus? And then have you made use of him in your sorrow? Have you went to him with your sorrow? Are you using your sorrow to keep you from him? What does it mean for you to come to Jesus in the midst of your sorrow and say, Jesus, I know that you understand this. and, And I know that you can meet me in the midst of this sorrow. Don't hold back. Run to him. And if you went to him and asked him to give you his heart for this broken world, I know that it breaks our heart to see suffering and the wounds of this world, but imagine how it breaks the heart of Jesus. And he's willing to say, as as you are a priest, so may I be a priest who lives to, to, to take on some of the brokenness of the world and offer it up to you and say, Jesus, come. Bring your kingdom here right now. Jesus is the high priest and we need a high priest. He's the one who sustains us in the midst of reality. He doesn't deliver us from it. He doesn't say, yeah, you know, become a Christian and just check out of all the problems of the world. No, he says, take on my burden and come to understand me more fully than you ever have as we weep together and work together to make all things right. Let's pray.